Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. It's been a long time between parts one and two of episode five of Wait, What? Disney bought Marvel, Warner stepped in at DC to bring in more oversight, and the government instituted a program for blogging disclosure that has baffled everyone. But today's installment is still shockingly listenable. Today, by which I mean over a month ago, Graham McMillan and I talk about DMZ, local in the writing career of Brian Wood, comics in PDF format, Peter and Max, a fable novel, and a winding analysis of Dave Cockrum's return to Uncanny X-Men. We hope you have a listen, and we hope you still remember those far-off days of early September when people could talk about review copies without spending 20 minutes worrying about whether or not their house might be seized. Because part three is right around the corner. Thanks for listening. Can I start with the story of the comic that I didn't read this week? Please do. I get, because I'm very lucky, even though I complain about it a lot, um, cop- copies of certain comics from DC Comics. Mm-hmm. I got an envelope this week that included a letter introducing me to the new Kevin Smith series, Batman the Widening Guyer. Mm. Uh, and that's all I got in the, in the package. The comic was not included. Um, and I think this was the smartest move that DC Comics ever made. Because having read Batman Cacophony, I think the getting the package introducing me to the comic and the amusements I then got from not actually having the comic included in the package, the entertainment value of that was greater than I would have gotten from <laughs> reading Batman the Winding Guy by Kevin Smith. So you're saying that um, you can recommend it based on your non-reading of it, or you can... Rec- I'm saying I can recommend the comedic experience of <laughs> a copy without there actually being a copy included in the envelope um, much more than I can recommend the comic itself. I see. Well, that that is something to, I think, keep in mind in that if you can only make one non-purchase of a comic... <laughs> That you actually thought you purchased, it should be that book, I guess. That's exactly the, the lesson I was trying to give. Okay, that's the moral. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Did you read all of Cacophony then? No, no. I read the first issue and then thought, "Wow, life is too short, isn't it?" And then never read the next two. Yeah, it it was kind of interesting. I really I picked that up and and sort of flipped through it and read a scene or two and was very like, huh, like, like, I don't know. It'll be curious to me to see if, you know, uh, I remember there were times when I, I read Kevin Smith book, comic books and enjoyed them and considered myself a fan. And I, 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 after, after flipping through Batman cacophony, I was kind of like, well, I feel like that era ended. (laughs) (laughs) It's good that you, you thought that that era ended as opposed to maybe I was wrong all this time. Well, see, that's it. Maybe this is my my whole little uh, oasis blind spot is uh, is Kevin Smith books. No, I, I exactly. I I could be either either I'm was wrong all along or something has changed. But I see that, that's the way I go with these things because um, I another thing I actually did get from DC was the seventh volume of DMZ, uh, which I I mentioned to you in email mm-hmm. because I liked it so much after bitterly hating the first couple of issues of the series mm-hmm. that I've gone back and I've reread the first four trades or read the first four trades, you should say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like it. And it's, it's kind of surprising. I remember really, really, really disliking 
the first couple of issues of the mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thinking it was pretty much everything I didn't like about Brian Wood's work in one new glossier package. Right. Um, and so it was really interesting to me to go back and reread that now, having read, you know, 40 issues down the line and wondering whether he changed the writer, I changed the reader. Um, and realizing that it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. The first couple of issues, I think, are still n- not very good mm-hmm. and betray what Wood definitely had back then of a, almost a sense of self-righteousness overwhelming any other writerly instincts he might have, which I think really fuels something like um, Channel Zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Channel Zero reads far too much like, I've been to art school and I have a political mind, damn it, than anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the first couple of issues of DMZ do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he stops being angry and starts writing a story, mm-hmm. it becomes a really interesting series. Hmm. And, and how far in how far in do you feel that that happens? Uh, Pretty case? much by the second trade. Hmm. Okay. I think this, uh, by the I, his I am an angry young man thing. I think continues all the way through the first trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But the second trade, I think, is a really uh, the second trade is a really interesting uh, story that is still polemicy. Says he, creating a whole new word, mm-hmm. uh, but shows enough ambiguity that I was like, "Oh, I wonder what's going to happen in the third. And pretty much after the third, I was hooked. Hmm. Well, that's uh, that's really good to know. Um... I, uh, I'm trying to think. You, you told me you didn't like Channel Zero, uh, not Channel Zero, uh, DMZ, when, when we were talking about this in email. Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, my my problems with Wood were that it struck me hmm, that he is was one of those guys who kind of needed an editor more. Like, like the best thing he sort of had going for him was that sort of polemicism, and that behind it i thought there were a lot of really bad storytelling choices that that there were things that he made a lot of what i thought were kind of amateurish mistakes so dmz i remember reading the first dozen issues or so and feeling like it was somebody who kind of didn't know how to tell a story I would like to say learning the ropes as he went, but I wasn't exactly sure that he was learning the ropes. Like, he had a tendency to um, introduce scenes and characters in kind of talky, stagey ways, and people would sort of explain the conflict to the reader. It, It tended to be a lot of tell as opposed to show. I didn't feel like there was a lot of showing going on in in the books ever. Um, and I remember feeling, for me, really frustrated that, that DMZ, that there was a really brilliant idea, like, a, of, of, uh, taking 9-11 culture and turning it on its head, that New York, simultaneously after 9-11, felt like a city that was, you know, under attack, um, and then as time went on, as you saw the Bush administration really kick into gear, realizing that it was under attack sort of by the rest of the country in a way. So I thought that that was such a, a brilliant and br- like a really brilliant idea. But 
what frustrated me at the time reading DMZ was I felt that Wood had hadn't done enough research really I I hadn't been reading I hadn't read a ton but you know I had read uh, War is a Force that Will Give Us Meaning which was a, a book written by Chris Hodges who, who was a war correspondent and he talks a lot about what life is like during wartime and I sort of felt like Wood had had this idea he kept telling you like okay this is how things are this is how New York is now but apart from like kind of saying things like people eat cafes that are fueled by cow farts or I don't you know it's it's been so long since I've read it I, I clearly don't you know it's even more obvious that I don't know what I'm talking about but there there was to me a kind of thing of like it wasn't there it it sort of felt like um there was I had no real sense of how New York had apart from like these weird sort of very glib landmarks of like oh central park is now this and brooklyn is now that there wasn't really a feeling i felt of what it was like to live in that culture and how mm, just how it felt you know i i felt like i was always being told and again that sort of polemicist kind of way of a propagandist will tell you how you're supposed to be feeling, but, you know, a, a really good one will actually dramatize it. The DMZ, the first ten issues for me, uh, felt very undramatic. Um, but I take it I, on I, reading I, it, that's yeah, not the I, case. I, yeah, I'd really recommend reading the first, the third and fourth trade then, and uh-huh. seeing what you think. Right. Um, because... I would say the second trade is pretty much where he suddenly realizes that he should be telling stories. Mm-hmm. Um, or no, that's not true. That's unfair. It's the one where he realizes how to tell stories within that context. Right. Uh, and he's learning as he goes. Mm-hmm. But I think the third and fourth are the ones where the it becomes less obvious what stories he's trying to tell. And I think it becomes more interesting because of it. Right. Well, and I th- I think that's uh, I think that sounds that sounds like a good thing. I was both surprised and kind of heartened to hear that you had liked them and wanted to go back and and revisit them because I do feel that Woods one of those guys who, for the for the most part, I feel like his intentions are pretty noble. You know, in in that way, I don't feel that it's all. I feel like he certainly wants to be able to do this stuff and do it well. I, I So uh, the idea that he actually sort of picked it up um, as as he went along. On the other hand, who knows? Maybe part of my problem is you tend to prefer, like you said, the more uh, works that, that, that work on sort of an emotional level. Yeah, I, suppose, I, 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 and I are think a I'm more much... Unpredictable, I suppose, in that way. I'm much more of a, a Woods, um, Woods target audience, I think. Mm-hmm. Wood is, a, I think, a much better... Um, I don't want to say anti-intellectual writer, but I think he, he, his best stuff works more on a, an emotional level than an intellectual level. Yeah, he's. I um, would you call him like maybe an anti-structuralist? I guess you know, like it seems to no, me. No, I, like... I think I think sometimes he's far too aware of structure. Mm. I, I think he can intellectualize the writing process uh, without intellectualizing his stories, if that makes sense. Interesting. Because I always felt that my problem was that he tried to eschew traditional structure. Like he was trying to say that, you know, he was always saying he was trying to do new things. But I never really had a sense that he had 
the the building blocks, you know, to to the original structure. To, he knew the original structure in place, you know. So, um, so like I said, I I have a tendency to believe that, like you know, that you have that you are, like you said, you you respond to a story sort of emotionalism, and I I tend to get very uh, antsy if I feel like the if the person doesn't have the structure grounding it, I tend to get very much like, well, this person's lost and, and, and it's not working for me. Like, I guess I lose faith in the writer faster. Did you, did you read local? Um, I did. And that's to me a pretty good example of, of what I'm talking about because it started pretty strong. And then it seemed to me to get really lost. And that, that's why I was asking. Cause he pretty much, throws out his original idea and his original structure by, like, the fourth issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can tell, like, the book shifts uh, in order to accommodate what he then wants to do, which is valid, but at the same time is not necessarily what you sign up for. Right, right. And I think that that is one of those things that's pretty... It, it is pretty hard to, to, to say in advance that you're going to do what you're going... You know, what you say you're going to do, and then not have it sort of grow and evolve on you. I, I think my problem is that, that, yeah, I never really kind of... Wood stuff never really quite manages to be what it says that it's going to be, and he sort of insists that that's kind of the point a little bit. Um, and I and I never quite believe him. I always believe, like, you got lost, you got in the weeds, you didn't know, like, you were like, okay, I'm going to do 12 issues of this, and you realized you had everything that you were going to end up wanting to say in, in four, and now you've got to change things up. But also there was, I mean, was Local the one that had the story about the two brothers and the crime? And Yes. I I thought that that was a story that really fell apart. Like, it starts, it kind of, it, it felt like a writing exercise to me. A lot of Wood's stuff feels like first drafts. It feels like he needs to do a second draft of the material. And I feel like I'm reading the first draft where suddenly he like goes, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go left instead of right, but because it's a spontaneous direction and because of how close to deadline he's working, he never goes back and, and, and refits the story so that it feels organic. It kind of feels like I always read his stuff and and it feels like I hit areas where it's like, oh, this is where he panicked or this is where he chickened out or this is where he, you know, kind of felt completely self-conscious telling a crime story and suddenly it's going to be like an emotional story you know like and again he does the same thing to to much better effect in part because i think becky clunan is amazing um with demo where he starts again they start with one idea and then they pretty much throw that out or they make it very vague in terms of like, well, what are powers anyway? What are Yeah, exactly. Yeah, demo again is something that he just shifted perspective on. But it, I had a really different experience with demo because I read demo as a collection. Mm-hmm. Oh, you did? Yeah. And so, well, I, I start. it's one of those things that, again, I started on the singles and then for some reason missed an issue and then was like, eh, whatever. And then picked up the collection down the line. Right. Um, but... Because of that, I think I expected something different from Demo than if you'd read it in singles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and that's it. I had read the first couple of issues. And, and even as it went on, I mean, I think Brian Wood sort of reminds me of, in a way, Azarello, somebody who's very much uh, an artist-turned-writer 
but who, who consequently just really works incredibly well with his with his artists. So I I always end up appreciating, um, you know, again demo like Becky Cloonan's work. I was just kind of agog in it, and and Ryan North is that uh, Ryan Kelly. Ryan Kelly, sorry about that, Ryan. Um, Ryan Kelly in local uh, does just. It, does really just great work throughout like i really love it hits like kind of that perfect level of like influenced by pope without you know sort of slavishly imitating him and you know filled with detail but not too much detail you know did I, um did you read the the northlanders issue that came out i guess a couple of months ago the the vasilius lolos one uh was that the one that would sit around as a pdf yes. for people yeah. to read i did yeah. i did I started reading it and then stopped? Uh, it, it looks. I mean, what I was going to say is like it's it's as a showcase for the art. Mm-hmm. It's it's ideal. Mm-hmm. I honestly can't remember that much about the story, but as a showcase for the art, it it will just knock your your socks off. Well, and I started looking through it, and I found that. Um... Uh, I, I, as I recall, it was it was an issue about a fight, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be kind of interesting. I I I like single, you know, sort of done in ones that take a little piece of something and examine it and look at it. So it's supposed to be this gorgeous art, and it's this fight between these two guys and explaining sort of who they are. And also, as I recall, going into details about the weapons that they use, and I'm like, this should totally be completely up my alley. And by page four, I was unbelievably restless now i didn't bother um, i pretty much just figured that it wasn't where like i couldn't really fault anyone at that point i wasn't really sure if that was because wood had failed or if i'm still really not particularly comfortable reading stories in pdf format i totally think that it's a, a wise choice i think it's great for um for people to send instead of sending review copies to actually produce a PDF and give it to people and read it. But it, I don't do it enough. It still feels really sterile. Like, um, boom, you know, had their first issue of hexed out again, a couple of months back again, they had, they had it up as a PDF for you to read. Um, and I looked at it and I remember thinking that the art was really gorgeous, but, uh, I just, I don't, um, I just have a really hard time concentrating. I don't know if it's like I, I suffer from ADD whenever I'm, you know, staring into a computer, but I just found that, myself getting really restless. You know? It's interesting you say that because I read the um, Boom's Jennifer's Body graphic novel this month uh-huh. uh, in PDF, mm-hmm. and I found myself much more disconnected from the experience of reading it because it was a PDF. Mm. And in part because it was such a long PDF. I think it's 100 pages or something. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's a really odd graphic novel anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that is increased by the format with which I was reading it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a very disconnected... Uh, it, it's the it's the tie-in for the new Megan Fox movie. That right. was written by Tom Cody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this really weird book where... Jim Mahfoud, Nicky Cook, um, Ming Doyle, and another artist I can't remember mm-hmm. are all illustrating different chapters. Each chapter is told from the point of view of one of the victims of Megan Fox's character in the film. Right. Which is a really nice idea. 
Yeah, it's a great idea. But because of the artists being so different, or actually that's not true, because Mahfoud is so different from every other artist in the book, mm-hmm. there's such a, a disconnect mm-hmm. between his chapter and all the other chapters that mm-hmm. it throws you off. If everyone's style was so different, it would have been one thing. Mm-hmm. But it's the fact that Mahfoud is so different from everyone else in the book, that, and also his chapter is first, you don't you don't recover from it. Everything else seems dull in comparison to his chapter. That's that's a drag. Uh, I can see how that I could see how that could happen. And what's weird is, do you so do you think do you think that that could have been avoided if you had a, co- a hard copy? Of I, I, I think and I, you could I think flip yeah, through I, it or something. I think if I'd been flipping through it, it actually would have made the. I think reading a PDF is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And if you're not invested in it, it becomes something that you judge more harshly. Yeah, I think so too. And I think and I, I think that I, I, for uh, for Jennifer's body, I, I probably would have been kinder on the book than than you were on, say, the. PDF. Then I was. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I I feel that um, I've been trying to read, uh, you know, for this Savage Critic art article that I may, <laughs> I'll have to do sooner or later because I've spent so much time doing it. Uh, researching it, looking into to comics on the iPod slash iPhone, you know, downloading various things and messing around with the Comixology thing app and uh, working, reading some of the IDW titles. And I'm fascinated with the different approaches. And one of the things that I find that's problematic about this sort of slideshow app uh, approach that IDW does is there's no real kind of you just don't have a sense of how long things are. I mean, there's probably a way that you double tap it and it says 15 out of 47 or something like that. But, but panel by panel, I just find myself thinking, and and again, with the comiXology, uh, some of the stuff that I, I was looking at, the comiXology thing has a way to really, you know, it guides you through the comic page and then you can move back and look at the whole page if you want. But I find myself really kind of not I don't know maybe it's just my um, I, I I think when I sit down with a comic book you sort of can gauge how far you are in the story and it's sort of I don't know maybe it just helps orient you enough I guess um, that without it you're sort of always sort of second guessing the narrative like how far am I into this how much do I have left I feel like I've been reading for four hours you know, uh, I, I had literally the completely opposite experience of that, not with a comic, but with a prose book this week. Ah. I was reading Peter Max, the Fables novel mm-hmm. that's coming out, and I became so aware that I was less than 100 pages from the end and that the story was not far enough towards a conclusion that that distracted me for the entirety of maybe the last third of the book. <laughs> Ah, well, so yes, that completely takes my point and turns it on its head. So, um, so that was, did you, so you were able to read it. So you really had that feeling of like, this isn't going to come together. What did you think? Yeah, that I was, was I be? was, I was completely like, are you just going to completely shortchange me on this thing that you're spending the rest of the book building up? Mm-hmm. Um, Peter and Max, uh, uh, do you read fables or are you? I, I read the first 20, 30 issues and then jumped off and. Why I wasn't um, really knocked out by it. So Peter Max is uh, Peter Piper, mm-hmm. and his, I assume, previously unknown brother Max, 
I didn't know if Peter Piper officially had a brother in mythology before. Um, but Max turns out to be. Actually, I was going to say something, and then I complete, would have completely ruined part of the book, so I won't. Um, Max has his own fable, shall we say. Okay. Um, and it is... Basically, the entire book is teasing the two brothers meeting up again. Mm-hmm. And you are maybe 40 pages from the end of the book before they meet. Mm-hmm. Or before they're even, you know, anywhere close to meeting. Right. And it really, really... By that point, I was so hooked on what was happening in the book. I was getting kind of mad at Bill Willingham at the possibility that maybe he was going to shortchange me. <laughs> I really was. I was like, no, 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 no. If you end this with a to be continued or anything, I will get on a plane to wherever you live and I will hit you in the head. <laughs> um, I, you... I, I loved it as a book. I, the ending is rushed. Okay. And then some. Um but still satisfying despite that. I thought it was a very, very good book. Okay, so it's a, it's a good read. I heard someone saying, uh, someone else had said that they, oh, I think it was J.K. actually was saying that uh, uh, that he really enjoyed Willingham's prose style and thought he was a really good writer. I was kind of surprised. Um, it, it flows really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It starts off kind of awkwardly, um, and I don't know if that's because he just felt that he had to get the history of the fables into like the first couple of chapters and he does he actually explains more about the you know why they're called fables and the history of, of fable town and everything mm-hmm. there than i think he has done in the comic <laughs> um but it's it's kind of awkward when he's doing so yeah yeah um it, it only really gets going when the story itself gets going which is about the third chapter huh that's kind of awkward I, I think he he was finding his feet as much as anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Huh. Well, that's uh. But but overall, you enjoyed it and would or, recommend overall it. overall I would if anyone enjoys the Fable series, they mm-hmm. should definitely. Pick it up. Well, very nice. It is it is a, it's comparable to probably the strongest of the comics. Oh, good. So, um, and I I actually hesitate to ask. So, do you read? Do you follow fables like in trades or at all? I do. Oh, in do. trades, in trades. Okay. Uh, not not the individual, and I don't follow any of the spinoffs. So, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's something about fables. I think Jack of Fables is does not have. Hmm. Do you, do you have speculations as to what that might be? Because I'm kind of curious as to what. Because some people, part, I, think, I think part of it is I just dislike Jack as a character, and I think Jack of Fables, in being more true to that character, is a more um, arrogant, sarcastic, snide book that looks down at its audience in a way that Fables isn't. I see. I think Fables is a more sincere book. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, well, and it makes sense. I mean, it, it's also if you don't like the character, I can see why you would not like the spin-off title. You know, it's like if your yeah. least favorite character in X Men was Wolverine, why would you why would you follow the book? You know, because you love the X Men like I did. <laughs> yes, is that the point where? Well, I guess we'll have to save this for another time. But I quite enjoyed the second part of your your X Men discussion, and I, I really that... I really should write the third part, shouldn't I? Well, yeah, I mean, the second part only went up just recently, though. Yeah, I mean, but I actually I actually wrote the second part last week. <laughs> I wrote, the first, I wrote the first and second part together, and I really have to write a third part. Oh, cram. I, uh. I, did, I actually did that on purpose because I knew that someone would weigh in on the first part and make me reconsider doing it, so I wanted to write the second part at the same time. Oh, And that well. person, by the way, 
Tom Spurgeon. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, yeah, Tom. I, I like Tom's. Although I sort of agree. I sort of feel like. Hmm, what do I feel like? I feel like I disagreed with Tom's points because, well, at least for me, so when I was talking about Burn and Cockrum, um, I love the hell out of Cockrum's first run, but you really have to consider like the when this when he comes back, it's so different, and it's kind of like sort of what happened kind of is it is it the fact that when Cockrum is first doing X-Men it's before the shooter era and therefore his storytelling can be more dynamic and when he comes back it's the full figures in effect and he has to draw you know more of those horrible full body shots where people are less confused by close-ups or whatever I, I think it's not just that. I think also Cockrum at that point had experienced failure in a way that he hadn't when he did the, he did the first run. Hmm. Because oh. at that point he'd had... Um, what was the book he left X-Men for? Uh, the Futurians? Uh, his own book? No, 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 no. He did... Um, might even have been the Star Trek series. Hmm. Really? He left for another ongoing series that got cancelled. And then he did something else, and then he did Futurians, and like all of his things had gone cancelled. Right. And also, Burns' work was so different and so much more popular, and the book became so much more popular with Burn on it. Oh yes, definitely. That he must have had, not even flop sweat, but I mean, mm-hmm. his style, Burns' style, especially with Austin, was this, um, really slick. Mm-hmm. Style in a sense of that I really find distasteful looking at now, which really surprised me because I remember when I loved Burns' style. Mm. But looking at the issues now, there's parts where I'm just like, oh god, it's like the disco of comics. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, I loved Burn and Austin on Iron Fist. I'm, you know, I was one of those few people who was like an Iron Fist fan. That, well, not few, but I was a huge Iron Fist fan the first time around, and and loved Cockrum's. Cockrum's work on X-Men the first time around was so great but I mean I actually dropped X-Men Uncanny X-Men around issue 125 and then had to jump back and fill in the issues like around issue you know because of course after Dark Phoenix you know the Dark Phoenix storyline I'm like oh shit I apparently have missed out and had to jump in and it was a pain in the ass to buy those old issues and stuff but I, I, I kind of like, I can totally understand, because I, those first couple of issues, I was like, you know, Burns' work isn't, didn't feel right for me for the X-Men, but obviously I was completely in the minority in that opinion, because it was, that, it was huge and hugely popular. But I also feel, again, the stuff that I was talking about in, in the comments is Claremont and Cockrum, those first, like, up to 10617, they're very jokey. They're very loosey-goosey. Like, there's high drama, but there's also a lot of nerdy, um, super nerdy things, like the fact that they have cameos, or the idea that Nightcrawler might be a fairy creature, and the leprechauns know about that, you know? And Byrne pretty much takes all that stuff and goes, no, 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 no. We're going to make stuff, like, let's take this stuff more seriously. Let's be, let's go darker with it. Wolverine's the most interesting character to me as far as I'm concerned, you know. And like you said, that this is the thing that I think is really funny, is that you wrote those two posts side by side, because all the stuff I put in my comments, when you 
posted your second post, I'm like, oh, Jesus, I totally, like, completely over-influenced Graham in my comments, you know, like, complete narcissist that I am. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> Sadly, I had written it a week earlier. Um, no, but it, it's it's really weird. And what I think happens after that is Burn and Shooter together push Dark Phoenix in the direction it goes, mm-hmm. and in doing so, break the book for the first time. Do you think X Men? Yeah, X Men. Oh, it, I think it breaks the book for at least the next year, hmm. and then after that, it influences the direction of the book in a way that I don't think anyone really thought was going to happen. Hmm. And there, there's a couple of reasons why I think it breaks the book, or at least why I think that it broke the book for them at the time. Mm-hmm. Firstly, after Dark, the Edge of Dark Phoenix, it's pretty much like. A year of fill-ins. Mm-hmm. No, there's no, there's no, there's no, di- no, no. In terms of like story-wise, there's no direction for the title at all. Ah, uh, dude, I, there, I would agree fill-ins. with you if it wasn't for Days of Future Past kicks in at one forty-one, one forty-two, though, right? That's yeah, like... but but that's it. Like, and even then, that's the part that he then decides he's going to pick up on. That mm-hmm. is two issues of fluke in the middle of. Oh, look, here's the alien against Kitty Pride, Or Nightcrawler and Wolverine go to Canada. Or here's Doctor Doom and Arcade. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like 141, 142 comes around and, and Claremont immediately goes, this is the direction I'm going in. It takes them a while to come up with that. But I don't think that that's because of Claremont. I think what happened is, like, Claremont... Like, Byrne is such a huge component of the X-Men that when he leaves it takes a long time for Claremont to figure out what to do and what he wants to do. But I don't think that that's, but I don't think it's Dark Phoenix breaks the book. I think John Byrne leaving breaks the books because usually after each one of the, Oh no, somebody's dead or we think somebody's dead. You know, there's a lot of, you know, the uncanny issues have a lot of leisure time of like, Oh gee, somebody's dead. We should sit around and scratch ourselves in the savage land for an issue or two. Um, you know, I feel that, that what happens is after Days of Future Past, which honestly is the other... I think that's what breaks the X-Men more than the death of, of Jean Grey in a way, because, well, or they both do, that those two events essentially end up being so huge and such huge hits and leave such huge marks on everyone's psyche that everyone who goes on to do X-Men from that point on are just doing riffs on that. You know, yeah, but see, that's like I, I think two. I think those two broke everyone else's minds. Mm-hmm. I think Claire, I think Claremont was pretty much faked by Dark Phoenix all the way through one seventy five, mm-hmm. which is Madeline Pryor and the marriage to Madeline Pryor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's after one seventy five that he really gets into his days of future past kick. Exactly. That's what I'm that, like. It's like those two riffs. You know. No, but that's what I mean. Like, it, but it takes him what, three, four years to go from the original Days of Future Past to starting to just cannibalize it for parts. Yeah, but if only because he's too busy cannibalizing the Dark Phoenix storyline for parts, you know? I mean, he's sort of that whole, all the stuff, all the, after you've got the Doctor Doom thing, I don't even remember what happens at 150, but that super, what's that? Magneto. It's the first time they beat Magneto. Oh, is in 150? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. And even then, I'm pretty sure it might actually just be Scott that beats Magneto on the like <laughs> chair. But no, it's a really weird thing because like the X Men get their asses kicked by Magneto for the longest time, which is really interesting. Oh yeah, it's it's actually pretty, pretty much it's great. pretty much 150 when they beat him for the first time is when Magneto also starts thinking maybe I'm not going to be a bad guy forever. Like there, there's he's doing really interesting character stuff. Right. Yeah. No, the character stuff there is great, but like his storylines. I just remember that the whole thing with the the brood storyline in space is really, really, it's really dark, it's really death-obsessed, um, and it's very, yeah, it may or may not be super mind-rapey, I don't recall. It seems to me that there is a bunch of weird weirdo stuff going on there. Uh, the, the, mind, the mind-raping has start, like, starts in the Burn era, and also it's stunning to me that like within the first issue of Burn, the book suddenly becomes the X Men that everyone knows. I thought like, that was a the really first good point. Issue. Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. It's it's amazing when you read them all together, and then you're like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> <laughs> like it really is. All of a sudden, crystallizes. But um, mind rape, like, really starts getting played up uh, pretty much immediately after. Um, right with the Hellfire Club and Mastermind, and uh, the Hell. But, See but again, uh, it's... But, but after Dark Phoenix, it really starts getting played up pretty much as one fifty one because that's when the White Queen takes over Storm. And okay, then see, there one, we go. Like the Brood are taking over mm-hmm. uh, the X Men. Exactly. Like, there's a, it's like pretty much from that point on, mm-hmm. so, someone at some point is pretty much going to be mind controlled. Yeah. Well, see, so I think we can say it's sort of a triumvirate between the mind rape and the Dark Phoenix and the Days of Future Past. Like these are these become sort of Claremont's like weird fetish fetishes for like a huge chunk of the run after that, wouldn't you say? And then, yeah, and then what happens is he hits like two hundred and one, and then he's just screwed. <laughs> like two hundred and one knocks him off his run so much, and it's really funny that when I said that last time, lots of people in the comments were arguing with me and saying, "No, you know, I really like the Australia sound and everything." And I'm not saying any of that is bad. I'm just saying he's pretty much making that up on the like on the fly. And when you read them in large chunks, you can see that after a while, he's just like, "This isn't working. I'm going to change the status quo again." It's interesting because I really do feel that there is a lot of stuff that, like you said, it it all kind of once Claremont and Byrne are there together, I think Byrne ends up bringing tremendous amounts of stuff. I mean, that's the thing that I think is so funny about Byrne is I think that he would probably talk with pride about the idea that, you know, he had more influence on Claremont than Claremont had on him, you know, and I, it, I think he'd be entirely correct, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I agree. I just think that what's funny, it, it, while he's right, the difference is kind of th- that that shouldn't necessarily be a point of pride. That it that it is very much the fact that Claremont is able to truly collaborate with the people that he ends up collaborating with in a lot of ways. In that he takes sort of he takes from them, and then it kind of gives it fuels his interests and his obsessions. You know. He ends up being far different because of Burn than he would have been if Cockrum had never left X Men, and I think we would have looked at a very, very different book. You know, some of which definitely some like the like by the time the Kitty you know Kitty Pride's fairy tale pops up in issue one fifty two, one fifty four. Um, 53 I think I <laughs> that's great that I can't nail it I'm like I know where it's somewhere in there um, it already feels like it's time has passed like it already feels like kind of wrong and an anachronism you know what's 
interesting about Cockrum's return for me as well is um, Cockrum's return is the first time and pretty much the only time during Claremont's run that the book looks old-fashioned. Well, yeah. Well, I guess. I mean, that's true. I I was going to say the John Romita Jr. stuff, I didn't like it, but you're right. It doesn't look old-fashioned. But but again, I, I don't know. I mean, everything, if you look at Secret Wars, if you look at, you know, he was right there during the height of Shooter, Con- literally controlling the house style, which was a, a throwback to, to Weisinger's, you know, dictums about, you know, making sure that all of the body parts, you know, were kind of in the panel at one place. That, you know, this idea of very simple storytelling so that people weren't getting confused by all the endless close ups or whatever, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, his definitely his layout's become really, really dull, and he's not served at all well by Joe Rubinstein as an anchor either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I. Oh, and you go. Uh, I was just going to say, but I honestly think that if you look at those those things, they look exactly like Secret Wars. They look exactly like – I mean I think one of the reasons why Burn stuff gets sort of more dull is he's one of the few people that can do those. Like you know how like in Dazzler there's all those shots where like suddenly there's like some super long shot of all these like five or six little bodies and all you have are like blur, you know, at least in the old comics, like you had like solid stripes of color to give it any depth whatsoever. Kind of, you know what I'm talking about? That, that is, you see that in Cockrum stuff and it's the complete opposite of where he wants to go, but you pretty much see it throughout all of Marvel comics at that time. And there's only a few people like burn or Zek or a few other guys who are able to actually do it like who are able to do any sort of like team book and not have it look unbelievably awkward and bad. So, I mean, that's so, me. I don't really think that it's Cockrum as much as Cockrum being smothered to death under a, under a house style that really was pretty dictatorial at that time. So Jim Shooter killed the X-Men. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> well, a lot of people definitely thought so with the whole idea that he, his, his whole dictum was that Jean Grey either had to die or, be punished forever for killing the planet of, you know, broccoli people. So I, I, I don't think that he killed it forever, but I do think that the same way that a lot of people look back on Marvel comics of the seventies and have a difficult time reading them because of the faux stand speak. I have a really hard time reading Marvel comics from that period of the eighties because the art is I don't think it's the artist's fault, but the art is just horrible and muddy and terrible because it's all trying to be very clear and simple, and it's suffering under under a house style. I feel like Shooter really kind of um, he drove a lot of people, a lot of talented people away from Marvel. The talented people that ended up developing under him ended up. I don't. I I think they just ended up being strong enough to flourish despite the house style not because of the house style Mm -hmm. but i mean that's just me i feel like you know burns level of storytelling when you look back at iron fist stuff he was already into drawing you know almost all the the full figure in effect anyway so you know his his ability to do that in you know the x-men on the other hand he also was clearly working marvel style off of claremont's plots and so he would tell the story at the speed that he needed it to be told. I mean, he was very much uh, a second collaborator on the book in a way that Claremont 
and the book probably needed. You know. Yeah, exactly. I, there, there's there's definitely a, a, an effect he he has on the writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's today's episode of Comics History. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and Jeff, you still haven't told me what you've read this week. I and I, I still have to tell you my essential Dazzler story. Ooh, okay. So, uh... One more episodes, my friend. Absolutely. Once more into the breach. So, let's jump, and I'll call you back in about a minute, and then we will wrap all that up. Okay, cool. Fantastic. Bye. Bye.